the comic book pit. Okay. So uh, this is Comic Book Pit number 189, I believe, and back with another uh, conversation with Marcel. And this week we're going to talk about the year 1986 and, and what it what it meant for comics and what it, I guess it still means for comics. Yeah, it was kind of a it was kind of a watermark year. I mean, there's obviously there's the 60s with Stan and Jack basically creating everything that we know now in the Marvel Universe. Uh, and then there was, everyone knows the 90s as, you know, the image boom and then the bust um, and the speculator market, etc. But I, I feel like 86, you know, gets looked, I don't know, looked over a little bit. Uh, yeah. I mean, aside from the fact that, like, or I should say, aside from people talking about Watchmen and Dark Knight Returns, that nobody really talks about... The fullness of 1986. Yeah. Because there was a lot going on in comics that year. Yeah. It was really... Um, like I said, I, I think everything that that the 90s gleaned, and, you know, as far as the, you know making grim and gritty characters, you know, that stemmed from the 80s and people that grew up reading comics in the 90s like that they don't know that mm -hmm. you know they're they think the grim and gritty started in the 90s comics are I, I feel like it was it was definitely a focal point in comics history um and what you were just talking about right there you know I, I yeah I can attest to that I, I had a conversation with a friend recently and this is I'm gonna say a younger friend he's younger than us. Because <laughs> um, we're a couple of old, crusty bastards. Yeah, we were just talking some crotchety talk before this all <laughs> got started. Um, and this, we were talking about, this was in the past few weeks, we were talking about just some, some mainstream characters, and as I recall, specifically Batman. And I realized while listening to him that his perspective on a lot of these the, the elements of Batman and his importance to the DC Universe was was developed. His age kind of hindered him from seeing the fullness of his history. Like he, I, listening to him talk, I realized he 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 saw Batman as only having risen to being a top tier character, like a top top tier character oh, wow. in like the 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 nineties, two thousands, and and as he saw, I. I, I you know, interjected a little bit. No, Batman's been top tier for 
decades. I'd almost say since his inception. Like he's, mm-hmm. you know, Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman. That's about as top tier as you can get. Oh yeah. But if you, you know, I had to. I also had to step back and remember, you know, if you came into comics culture post 1986, you don't, you know, you don't have that sense of history. You know what it was before versus after, and you know this when, when you mentioned this topic. You know, it got me to thinking of what was going on. Like, where was I at in 1986? Mm-hmm. You know, and I, I turned 15, 16 that September, and by that point, I'd already been reading comics for 10, 11 years. You know, so I was well versed in in the culture and the histories. And, and as I mentioned the last time I was here on your podcast, you know, I always had professional aspirations, mm-hmm. and and quite frankly, very mainstream aspirations. Um, so that was where a lot of my attention and focus had went. But you know, in '86, there was just there was just everything. There was everything floating around out there. And you know, I was reading a lot of stuff. I was being exposed to a lot of stuff. And this is where creators were really kind of finding their voices. You, you might want that that article that you sent me. Mm-hmm. Well, that, that that series of articles that was really kind of informative. It, talked about a lot of stuff that I already knew, but I like the chronology yes. that he established, mm-hmm. you know, reading about these things in sequence. Because now, 1986 for me, I can look at it in two ways. I can think of the person I was that year when all these books and things were coming out and I was reading them and seeing how comics were being transformed in front of us at the time, but I can also look back on it in retrospect and see what it meant after the fact and that's kind of neat to be able to, to view it in both ways and that's something if you weren't there you don't you just don't have that right I feel people kind of lose out by not being able to have that that perspective yeah I came in um, I think that's actually when I started collecting comics okay so like the like 86 87 uh, was when I was for I mean I, I think I, I had read comics here and there as a kid, but it wasn't until I was you know thirteen that I really actually started collecting and really paying atten- attention to um, you know the 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 stories and the characters and the creators and mm-hmm. the um, um, just the. The, the history and the legacy of so many of these characters and like I think like my I, I first I started with um, I, think I actually I still remember my, the first comic I ever bought was Uncanny X-Men 207 mm-hmm. and um, you know uh, Chris Claremont doing the X-Men I mean that was classic stuff you know and it, 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 it's so different now where or I should say then, it's like you just picked up a comic and you just started reading. Mm-hmm. Whether you knew what was going on or not. You know, there, we didn't have a, a Wikipedia. We didn't have, you know, the internet to fall back on to to uh, learn what had come before. We didn't have shelves of trade paperbacks or the, like, Marvel Essentials, like right. the phone books, you know, the, like the big black and white reprints. Um so it was a, it was it was a more exciting time. I feel like it was just a time of discovery, and 
And the creators knew that. Like, if you read books then, they took into account that every issue they put out was somebody's first issue. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, I remember as a reader not feeling hampered by that. You know, picking up every issue, you know, there might be a recap if we were in, in the middle of some something specific going on. Or, like, you just, it was just part of comics. It, was, it wasn't a big deal. You know, now, recaps, you don't get that. Because everything is geared towards eventual collection. And they don't want to interrupt that narrative flow. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I mean, you're right. Like, it was, it was very different back then. You just kind of learned on the go. Mm-hmm. You picked up, you found out things from other collectors if you knew other people, and you just, things tied into things, and you just, you just learned and figured stuff out. The, the thing I miss, which you don't really, you might see it every so often, but, you know, you might be reading an issue of Spider-Man, and Spider-Man will see, like, Thor, and be like, oh, I wonder what Thor's doing, and it'll, it'll be a little caption box. Mm-hmm, to see what mm-hmm. Thor's doing, check out Thor number 354, mm-hmm you know, smile and stand. You know, there's always like, or whatever, like the editor's name, or, you know, they so they they still had that crossover appeal. Um, and, you know, like what you were saying about Batman, um, you know, the, the, the person you were talking to wasn't really aware of, like, kind of when they had, I don't want to say peaked, but really had, like, like they're they thought that the popularity had really you know started in the '90s. Um, you know, I picked up uh, on a whim. I, I really didn't even know anything about it. Um, but for my birthday one year, I got the Batman Year One mm-hmm. collection, and that blew my mind. That was a mo- that was a monumental book. That was Year One. And for anybody who doesn't have the context, I mean, because I guess there's going to be two people, two types of people listening to this podcast. People who are familiar with comics and kind of get the gist of a lot of these titles that we're throwing around, and people who have no idea what's being discussed. Mm-hmm. Um, but Batman Year One, along with Dark Knight, both of which were written by Frank Miller, and, and Dark Knight, which is also illustrated by Miller, um, were basically bookends of, the, of Batman's history. You know, and year one was meant to be like his new starting point as far as as his his uh, his history, his chronology, whatever his continuity went. And then Dark Knight was a Elseworlds ish ending that maybe mm. is the end, maybe was not. Right. Um, <clears throat> but they they both were they established a new way of storytelling within the medium. And then Miller also worked with Mazzuchelli, of course, on Daredevil. Born, Born again, again, right around that same time. Yeah. Like they came out back to back. And and if you look at them now, one of the things that I'm struck by is David Mazzuchelli's artwork. This is, It's one of the rare examples, if you read Born Again and then Batman Year One right after it, you can literally see him growing as an artist page by page. You see mm-hmm. him, just his power just growing. It's an amazing thing to witness. Yeah, uh, I, I remember being caught up in a lot of that at the time. You know, I could see, I was collecting those books, and I could see that there was a level of power that I just hadn't encountered in mainstream comics before. Mm-hmm. Any comics that I'd encountered at that point, really. I, as you were just talking, it made me think, you know, with the captions that they used to have in comics, you know, the, mm-hmm. you know, go reference this book, or this happened at this time, or... Things 
things like that, those little elements which have effectively gone away for most comics now, uh, you know, and that just was a staple. That was just a, you know, you figure if you go back in history to go back to that focal point of 1986, you know, you had the Silver Age was really the spark where the notion of shared worlds really took hold, mm -hmm. and you know, because it started really with Justice League over at DC, and then Marvel wa Marvel Comics wanted to emulate that success, and then you had the Fantastic Four, and then that was so successful they had their world building, and you had uh, you had Hulk, the Hulk, and then Spider-Man, and Iron Man, and the Avengers, and so on, and so on, and so on. Marvel really kind of crystallized the notion of what a shared world and universe could be, and we see that continuing to this day in the movies. So, that Big Bang that Stan Lee and all of his artists were at, that they started, that they sparked, there was there was a sense of, like you said, there was excitement, and there was, there was, there was a certain whimsy there, and, and a fearlessness, because they were doing something nobody had done, and that carried over, even, you know, if that was the Silver Age, it carried over into the Bronze Age. You could almost look at 1986 as the year when comics became, they went from being, they, they became self-conscious. Mm -hmm. They went from just being self-aware to be actually being self-conscious, and a lot of those elements fell away. And to a degree, that's the year that comics lost a sense of their whimsy. Yeah, it was like they they became very introspective, mm -hmm. like the and and the the idea of uh, you know breaking down the the idea of the superhero and deconstructing it, and that's what you know you have books like Watchmen and Dark Knight Returns, and you know to take those the superheroic elements and I mean adding the the dark and admittedly human elements to it, you know, and it, to, to make it more real is both fascinating and disturbing. Mm -hmm. You know, to to see these costume characters that you grew up with in very real world situations, it's. I mean, it, it really was. Um, you know, at the time, just uh, like it. it, it they were breaking new ground in the same way that they were breaking new ground back in the 60s. Mm -hmm. And and I think part of, um, if I remember correctly, that article uh, referenced the idea that in the 80s, you know, there was the, uh, the with the arms race, the U.S. and the USSR, and, you know, that, like, the world seemed to be on the brink of nuclear war. Yeah. You know, it's like, Every day, it was you know, there was always talks about nuclear war, and and the comics started to reflect that sense of of uh, end of the world, you know, type of uh, there was very much a lot of that in you know, uh, especially in Watchmen and uh, you know, Dark Knight Returns. I mean, both sure. had like you know, the the nuclear, you know, the the, the background of nuclear storytelling. Sure. If you will, um, so you know it, the so not only you know were the the creators you know forging new ground, but they were I mean they were obviously very much influenced by just what was going on in the world. Yeah, well, and, and comics have always been influenced and directed by our collective social mindset. Um, 
you figure, you know, in the 70s, you know, just to pick an example, when when when, when urban crime was a, a real concern, it's always a concern. But you know, mm -hmm. you had you figure Marvel comics in particular were based in New York because these companies were in New York. The creators at the time were predominantly living in New York, and New York had a serious crime problem. It was dirty. Yeah, it was. <laughs> yeah, it was. It was awful. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and you had and you saw it reflected not just in comics. You saw it reflected across culture, and if anything. Comics were probably the usually the last place you started seeing these these themes reflected in popular Social culture. Social commentary. Yeah, it always seemed like they were right there at the tail end, but they were there, and you know that's where I, I instantly think of the Punisher. You know, the Punisher as a character grew directly out of you know movies like uh, the the Death Wish movies. That was comics's comics's mm -hmm. answer, mainstream comics's answer to that. The, the, a genre. The, the, the vigilante mm -hmm. genre. Absolutely. And so you figure you move ahead to the 80s and we had, like say, we had this extension of the Cold War and the superpowers arms race and you saw that reflected directly in the comics. And uh, not only that, we're, you know, the, in the mid-80s were just, you know, 10 years removed from the end of Vietnam, mm -hmm. which really Absolutely. is not a long time, you know, and so you were, you know, a uh, how you were saying the the idea of um, like the vigilante culture and gang culture being reflected in media um, post Vietnam? I mean, how many? I, mean, I think the biggest example was obviously Rambo, sure. you know, First yes. Blood. But uh, how many uh, copycats were there? Um, you know, movies coming out of you know post Vietnam uh, action movies mm -hmm. and um, you know uh, men's Adventure novels and uh, and comics and you know the the Punisher was a Vietnam vet and they even um, you know that uh, transferred over to a book like GI Joe which started mm -hmm. as a toy line but they that Larry Hama you know made some of the GI Joe characters Vietnam vets. Mm -hmm. And that was very much a big part of their, of you know, what made them, uh, you know, like have this bond. You know, Snake Eyes and Stalker and Storm Shadow were all in the same unit together. Right. You know, and um, and then of course you had a book just called The Nom, <laughs> which we were just talking about before we started recording. How it was, uh, you know, telling. Now I'm not super familiar with it. Um, I mean, I, I know I know of the, the book, but I never read it. So I don't know if they were stories, you know, pulled from real, you know, if they were, like, like real scenarios, or if this, these were just all, like, 100% fiction, or, like, I don't know, like, whoever was writing it, if they had, you know, if they served, or... I, I know the book was meticulously researched, mm -hmm. I, I, to my knowledge. I, I remember reading it, but it was so long ago. Um, that I don't recall. I'm, I I have a large impression of the of Michael Golden's beautiful artwork. Oh yeah, it was a wonderfully illustrated series. Mm -hmm. But like specific storylines and things, I I don't recall quite honestly. And I, as we were also discussing before we started recording, I have to admit when I was fifteen at fifteen sixteen years old, the Nam was too sophisticated a book for me. Mm -hmm. And I'm and there's certainly. 15, 16 year olds who'd probably read it and absorb it in a way, in a, in a much more mature way than I was capable at the time. And it's not that I didn't get it, 
I, I think I collected it early on more for the novelty than anything else because there was so much that was out there that was so mm -hmm. different. But it was it was a, it was the level of sophistication in that book and what that required to really absorb it. I would I needed to be older to understand. Um, and you know to go back just a little bit, you know. So it would, again, looking at 1986 as a focal point for comics across the board, you figure post. Post uh, Vietnam, post Watergate, post all of these things that had, had built up steam throughout the 60s and kind of coalesced towards the end and in the beginning of the 70s. You had the Civil Rights Movement, you had the Women's Liberation Movement, you had, you know, we, we had all these political assassinations that had taken place. And then after that, you had all these creators who entered into comics and had cut their teeth on the Silver Age books and, then had, and, and were learning their craft and learned their craft. And, and uh, that the article, I'm sure you'll post a link to that when we when mm -hmm. you post the podcast. It, it, the the author cited how you had a number of these creators who, by by the early to mid '80s, had really honed their powers, their 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 storytelling powers as writers and artists, to a point where you know these these people were at the peak of their storytelling prowess and. A lot, a number of them had gained considerable fan bases mm -hmm. at this time. So you figure, uh, Frank Miller, just to, to pluck one out of the ether, you know, Frank Miller as writer and artist, you know, he, he his big break came on Daredevil, which is about to see a new resurgence in <laughs> in the world with yeah. this upcoming Netflix show, uh, and and which is going to be heavily derived, I'm sure, from a lot of his work on that series. Well, it looks like, uh, not to diverge too much, but yeah, the he did the the miniseries, The Man Without Fear, with. Uh, John Romita Jr. Mm -hmm. and that was basically I, I feel like that was the Daredevil year one yes uh, and that's what they're I feel like the show is heavily pulling from mm -hmm. yeah and if you go back yeah if you go back to his initial run on Daredevil and he basically got that because the book was, wasn't was selling right you know and you had that with a number of those titles a lot of those freedoms on the mainstream books came because titles weren't selling and they just figured well what are you what else are you going to do yeah they, it can't get things can't get worse so you know, the only yeah, worse was cancellation. So have that, and he totally revitalized not just the book, but in many respects, just how creators approach the medium. And then it wasn't just John. Uh, excuse me, it wasn't just Frank Miller. I mean, you had John Byrne doing crazy things over at Marvel. You know, Fantastic Four and Alpha Flight. Yeah, you had all this stuff. And again, these are just mainstream books we've been talking about predominantly. I was when I think of mature slash sophisticated slash out-of-the-box storytelling around that time. The first couple books that I remember encountering that made a, a notable impression on me were Judge Dredd, and I forget the publisher at the time, but I, I remember I went to the comic shop, I went to Ides here in town. <laughs> that was where I'd been growing that, up. Going that might have been Eagle. I think you're right. Eagle? Yes. Yeah. I picked up an issue of Judge Dredd, <coughs> and I picked up an issue of American Flag by Howard Shaken, which was being published <laughs> by First Comic. I was just about to say, American Flag is definitely up there. I had the pleasure of getting to speak to Howard Shaken at, I believe, one of the Pittsburgh Comic Cons. And he, and I, I, it was nice because I got a chance to tell him this specifically, how I, I kind of felt my brain shift a little bit when I read that first issue of American Flag. Now, the content of American Flag was very mature. Oh, yeah. You know, I don't want... It wasn't... I will say it wasn't flat-out dirty or pornographic or anything, but it was very mature. I would mature. say it's definitely like a rated R 
mm-hmm. you know, book. At times a hard R. Yeah. yeah. And, I, you know, but I remember reading that book and thinking, <laughs> I don't completely get it, but I like it. Like, there's something mm-hmm. here. And he said, you were, he, he, what I was telling him about my experience with this, it's shaken, got it. He's like, you know, you were being, you were being pushed. You know, this was, this was, you know, pushing you to do some work, to understand and follow stories. And, you know, First Comics was doing all sorts of stuff. You know, the two books that I started really majorly collecting was American Flag and Mike Grohl's John Sable Freelance, mm. uh, which had its own brief run as a TV show there not yeah. too, too long after. And again, these were more cr- creators rising to power. These are people who had cut their teeth in the industry and done other things, and suddenly they were they had fan bases and they were given the freedom to do whatever they wanted. And, you know, you had other things over at first. You had, like, Badger and Grimjack and... Yeah, so Scout. Scout, mm-hmm. And, and, you know, and then you also had... You had uh, Eclipse Comics, which had been in business for years, and they were doing things like Espers or ESBers. I don't know how it was pronounced, but by Hudnall and Lloyd, I believe. These are names that would totally escape me if you just said, hey, mm-hmm. who worked on Espers back yeah. in the day? And I would just draw a blank. Or how about the... Uh, from uh, Kamiko, I mean, you had Grendel. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, good call. Uh, the Elementals, mm-hmm. you know, Will Willingham's book. Um, oh, I forget what else came out from Kamiko. Um, oh, I think ju- uh, there was a book called Justice Machine, which is oh, yes. what wasn't as well known, but that was a book that that I found just on the newsstand, just mm-hmm. randomly found like the first issue on the newsstand, and I loved it because it was. It was superheroes, but like they were swearing. I mean, not nothing crazy, you know, right. like f bombs. But they were swearing. Um, they were having sex. They were in you know extramarital affairs. They didn't get along. Like this was a team that was like very dysfunctional, but they were still working together as a superhero mm-hmm. team. And at that point, I had never seen anything like that before. And. Um, yeah, that was. I, I, I wish I could remember who the creative team was, um, but you know, and I, I remember um, picking up a random issue of Grendel once, and I just flipping through it. And I'm like, well, there's people having sex, <laughs> <laughs> and this, this was the, the 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 female Grendel, the Christine okay. Spar, okay. I think her name was, um, and that so that was a very mature book, you know, and and again, I, I think the the, the themes of you know some of these indie books, while you know I, as a teenager were you know the, it was like I, I felt like it was some like I was kind of getting away with something like <laughs> yes. you know it's like oh mom and, mom and dad just think I'm reading comic books but <laughs> there's some stuff going on there was some heavy content in a lot of these yeah books. yeah but and 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 again going back to what you said about I forget which book but like I. I wasn't really sophisticated enough to to really keep up with the story, um, you know, because uh, it wasn't just like you know your your typical superhero capes and tights book. It was you know sometimes there'd be no action at all. And yeah, oh yeah, you know, I mean, some of these books were just you know, and, and there was a, a way for these creators to you know, these indie creators to really put out something different and to tell really sophisticated stories. I remember, this was around that period that, 
around 86, so like maybe starting just a little before and even extending after. This was also when I started becoming a little bit more personally acclimated to the people behind the comics. Like, this is where I started exchanging letters and mm -hmm. things with people. Um, around that period, there were some book, there were some things that came out from Marvel that were written by, J I'm going to mess up his name, the pronunciation, I know, J.M. DeMatteis. Oh, okay. DeMatteis. Yeah. And the, I think the very first thing that he wrote that I read was his graphic novel, Greenberg the Vampire. Which was completely disassociated from any continuity. I don't think and stuff. I've never heard of that. It was just an independent graphic novel. I think I got it over on the shelf right over there. <laughs> and it was about a guy, and he was a Jewish writer, and he was a vampire, and his family didn't know. And it was it was illustrated by Mark Badger. And I just remember just loving the hell out of that thing. And I wrote them uh, about it, you know, snail mail, because that's mm -hmm. what you did back in the yeah. day. And both the writer and the artist wrote me back. And I still have wow. his letters somewhere. And Demetrius, he thanked me for having such good taste. <laughs> and he recommended some other books. So, you know, I went and got back. Just, he did a Gargoyle miniseries. Um, and he did. He ended up doing some other things as well. Oh, and then he did, oh yes, his series Moonshadow, which came out around that time. Moonshadow, that may have been the most sophisticated thing I had read that I got at that time. And it's since been collected. Um... And I should also point out, Mark Badger also wrote me back, and he it took him a while longer to write me back, but when he did, he sent me some original art from the book. No kidding. Yeah, I still have that somewhere wow. in and post that on Tumblr or something. That is like cool. That. And that blew my mind, the notion that not I, I made contact with people behind the scenes, but, you know, how tangible they made that world. You know, it's, mm -hmm. I, I already had aspirations towards this. But it became even more tangible that it could be. Like, I was holding original art from this book that I loved in my hand. Yeah. Um, I, I, I corresponded with... <laughs> I was a little obsessive back then. But I, <laughs> I corresponded with Dick Giordano, who was editor-in-chief at DC Comics at the time. And this was over what was going on with the Superman books. Which, you know, 86 was the year that they did... Well, Man of Steel. Man of Steel. The, the one they kind of rebooted, Man of Steel. I don't, yeah. That was and another big one. That was a huge thing. And that often gets overlooked in the shadow. The, the big three that people usually talk about from 1986 are Dark Knight, Watchmen, and Mouse. Mm -hmm. And it should also be pointed out that with all of these books, you know, we talk about them as books now, but these were all being serialized at the time. They were coming out in installments yeah, just issues. like everything else. So, yeah. you know, Dark Knight came out in four chapters, and... Uh, Watchmen came out in, in 12 more or less monthly issues. Well, uh, and the, the, the crazy thing about Batman Year One, it took, it was published in the regular yes. series with no, like, fanfare or, you know, it wasn't really seen as an event. Mm -hmm. They just published it. So I, I can't imagine being a Batman reader reading, you know, the issue right before year one started, and then starting re you know starting to read year one, I'm like, what is this? Mm -hmm. And they, you're right, they just did it. Yeah, they just did it within the regular continuity of the book. Well, not not continuity, but the regular numbering of the book, I should mm -hmm. say. Mm -hmm. Now that he what now Frank Miller was not he was not writing Batman, but they he did no. that he just did those four issues. They just brought him in because he he had been he went I think almost straight from Daredevil 
born again, which the same thing. Like that was that was mm-hmm. just a storyline in Daredevil. Right. It was just a self-contained storyline that basically more or less rebooted the character. Yeah. Um, and and quite honestly, I felt like they needed that because I had started collecting Daredevil during his 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 main run on that book. And when he left, you could feel it. Like, you just felt that shift in energies mm-hmm. and everything. It just changed. And I, you know, as comics readers, we're all guilty of this. You collect out of momentum yes. and inertia. You know, you love the character or, or whatever. I, I don't want any holes in my collection, mm-hmm. so I'm going to keep reading. We're completists. We're, we're ridiculous. We're <laughs> insane. <laughs> and they know that. Yeah. They know we do that. And so I was doing that. And, and at the time, comics didn't cost as much as they do now. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I, I remember remember feeling like they were adequate comics, but it wasn't, they didn't contain that level of excitement that they had. And then when right. Miller came back, I remember, because Mazzuccelli was already drawing the book. And his work was fine. It was technically fine. Miller came on, came back as writer for the, Dare, for the Born Again arc. <coughs> Excuse me. And... You, again, you felt it shift back. My first thought was, oh, he's not drawing it, too. But then M- Mazzuccelli's game just rose, and you just saw it, and you felt it. And, it mm-hmm. just, and, and again, and, and so they took, they went right from that over to DC and did Batman Year One. And it was the same thing. It was so nice, because it was like a continuation of that energy and that, a lot of those themes. That creative team was, I mean, like, light, that was like catching lightning in a bottle. Mm-hmm. And the fact that they, they did it not once but twice was amazing. 20-some years, 25 years later, we're still talking about 30 years later, we're still talking about I still, like, once a year, I'll still pick up Year One and mm-hmm. Born Again, and I'll read the hell out of them, because they are still, I mean, they're, they're timeless in a way that uh, some stories aren't, and, you know, that you can, even though you can, you can tell a little bit, maybe, like, the fashions are just a little slightly dated, mm-hmm. um, but the story is still... It's still resonance. It's still a good story, and mm-hmm. it's a story that will, you know, that will always have a place in that character's history. Absolutely. You know, but I'm sorry, but I I interrupted you. You were you were starting to talk about oh, Man of Steel. Well, I you figure at 15 when when word first started leaking that they were gonna they were thinking of doing this, and this is post Crisis on Infinite Earth, so that was DC's. For those who don't which, know, I'll say which we haven't even talked about yet. I know. <laughs> so this would be like the equivalent of the little asterisks that you would get, the little caption boxes <laughs> that would say, "For this information, this happened yeah. in this issue." So check out Crisis. Yeah, you figured that was DC's big watershed moment where they figured, where their 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 however many decades of continuity in the Silver Age at that point had gotten them for them. I guess they considered it to be too unwieldy. And they decided to merge all their their various universes into one cohesive universe. As a fan, I, I was excited at Crisis, the book, because they were doing they were killing major characters in mm-hmm. that book. You know, this is where they killed the Flash. This is where they killed Supergirl. But I also remembered at the time thinking, what is the big deal? I get it. Like I understood the concept of Earth One, Earth Two, Earth Whatever. Mm-hmm. It didn't seem that complicated or needed that much of an overhaul to me. But, you know, I wasn't publishing those books, as I found out. So, <laughs> I, you know, a, a year or so after Crisis ended, about, you know, you, the, the first rumblings of John Byrne taking over, jumping from Marvel to DC, which was a big deal. Apparently, that's still a big deal for certain creators to do, because John Romita Jr. just did that, and that was a big deal. 
And, and a few years ago, Mark Bagley went from Marvel to DC, and you could just tell it wasn't quite right. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think and I I think Bagley came back to Marvel eventually. Like Bagley, he like he was there for a couple of years. He did that Trinity like, that weekly mm-hmm. series, and then I think he had a brief run on Justice League of America. Oh really? I must with uh, James Robinson writing. Huh. Um, not really highly regarded. So some creators, I think they just fit certain universes better. Yeah. Even though I mean you can hopscotch across, but some are just you know. Mm-hmm. But when Kirby back in the seventies, he jumped from Marvel to DC. That was a big deal. So John Byrne, at this point, he'd had a lot of success over at Marvel with Fantastic Four and Alpha Flight, and he had a brief run on the Hulk that was like six issues. But I remember really enjoying. I that feel at like the he's time. yeah. I feel like he's done. Just about. I mean, and, and his whole Fantastic Four. Well, you said Fantastic Four. He, I mean, he he had such a impact on X Men with Claremont. Mm-hmm. You know, that was a great run. And the Superman books, you know, I, I took, obviously, that's my character, so when, when I found out that they were going to basically be ending that run, I took that really personally. And it wasn't like, like now, I'm very laissez-faire about <laughs> universes being rebooted because it's been done so often, and ultimately... It happens every couple of years now. Yeah. The paradigm shift, it always comes back to, to the status quo, always. Because these characters at the core, you can't... The big ones, you can't really mess them up so bad. They, they're always going to shift back to what we know about them. Mm-hmm. But, you know, when I was 15, I didn't know that. I had grown up with one Superman in the comics, and that was it. Mm-hmm. And as far as they were throwing it out, in my mind, they were throwing it <laughs> out. So I wrote <laughs> this nice, huffy letter to Dick Shortano about that, and he wrote me back. And he, <laughs> and he was nice enough about it, but he was very blunt, and he said, look, it kind of comes down to this. We, we had a choice. You know, the sales on on some of these titles, including Superman, are nowhere near what the public would think would, they would be for characters that are this well-known. And now, and now I should also point out, at that time, what they considered to be low sales would be runaway successes in Today. today's comics. Right. You know, a, a, a title selling 50,000 copies then was incredibly low. Versus if, it's, if a title sold 50,000 copies a month now, yeah. you're a hit. So the the, the, the the mediums changed a lot. But he said, you know, it kind of came down to a decision of either changing Superman so it could be a viable property or ha- not having Superman at all. So I was like, I had to acquiesce also because I didn't own it. It's like, okay, well, what you going to do? In time, I really grew to like what John Byrne did with that Superman reboot. It wasn't as drastic as I was fearing it might be. It was very different. Mm-hmm. But it was ultimately it was it was classic Superman, and as I liked it when it came out more than I expected to. Over time, again, I, I really liked it. There's some elements of what he introduced or reintroduced into the Superman canon that have stuck. I mean, the notion of the Kents being alive, his parents, yeah, they they had been dead. Like they always had died. His foster parents had died, and he was alone. And he changed that, and that worked. I mean, now we just expect at least one of his parents to be alive. Yeah. And that was a, that, that's a big deal. So, and, and and to also emphasize how important that shift was, you know, Alan Moore, who, you know, writer, watchman, and tons of other stuff, Alan Moore was entrusted with writing the, the capstone story for Superman at that time, which was the, the two issues. Yeah, whatever happened to the man of tomorrow, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And you want to talk about 
you know, I feel like those two issues you can kind of really just see right there what was going on in mainstream comics, that shift. Uh, because it's at once completely reverent of everything Superman up until that time. And yet it's in ways the darkest, most nihilistic thing that you could ever associate Superman being in, at least until the movie Man still came out. Because <laughs> um, <laughs> you, have, you have major characters being killed, you have some serious questions being asked of, of you know, in terms of morality, and, 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 you know, I just jokingly brought up Man of Steel, but if you read whatever happened to the Man of Tomorrow, the, 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 the penultimate moment in that story also has to deal with does Superman kill his adversary or not? And if you haven't read it, I'm not going to spoil that one for you. <laughs> but, you know, Alan Moore just addresses that head on. But you get to see, in that one story, you get to see comics as we knew them butted right up against what comics were becoming uh, in the space of two issues. Yeah. And, um, and, and expertly done. I don't know if any, if, how many other people could have done that so capably. But, but they pulled that one off. And then, you know, we have <laughs> the post-1986 world, which is something different. Yeah, I mean, and, and that's, so then, you know, that's all post-crisis. I mean, you've, You've got a lot of new, um, you know, post-crisis, and then uh, was the other was an event shortly after, like uh, Millennium. I think a, that was a, it. A, I think yeah, Millennium. Because mm-hmm. I kind of came into a post-Millennium uh, DC where I started um, again, not not knowing anything about this book. I found the collection of uh, the first seven issues of Justice League. It's called Justice League: A New Beginning. Mm-hmm. At uh, Walden Books <laughs> at South Hills Village, um, and I was like, "Well, it's the Justice League," and I, I recognize Batman and Martian Manhunter. I don't know who. Well, that's the Green Lantern symbol, but I don't know who that redheaded guy is with the, <laughs> the bowl cut, and you know. And then there was you know Blue Beetle, Booster Gold, Mister Miracle, Black Canary, and that I mean that Justice League, the, the Keith Giffen. Um, I think it was Damateus, mm-hmm. Giffen and Damateus, mm-hmm. uh, written and drawn by Kevin McGuire, um, to this day is, uh, to me, still blows me away. Like, the, the, the mix, I mean, the, the, the idea of adding humor to a superhero team was, like, unheard of. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, yeah, of course, In the way that they were doing, yeah. They, they did, theirs was very much a superhero sitcom. Whereas, like, yeah. yeah, maybe you had, like, in the Fantastic Four, you know, the, the Torch and the Thing, like, goofing around, like, playing pranks on each other. But that was different. You know, like, this was, like, a, a team of professional superheroes who were just utterly ridiculous. Yeah. But it still worked. It's still, like, there was still action and there was still really good storytelling. And it still took place right in, in mainstream continuity. Yeah. Right in there. Um... And they and like they but they whereas everything like I, I think that's where it started like the, the turn from grim and gritty to let's, let's scale it back a little bit let's let's go the opposite let's be funny you know and then I think that book led the charge for I mean I felt like after that there were a lot of other books that were trying to do, to to recreate that formula. Well, because nobody wants to be first. Everybody wants to be first to be second. <laughs> and you did. There's the only other 
humorous title I can think of that that worked for me was Ambush Buck from DC, which is kind of sort of around that time. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I, I do know people who are not as fond of that run of Justice League in particular. They're not, not as fond of, like, humor. Some people take their superheroes seriously oh, yeah. in that regard, and I, I kind of get it. I, I know some people who weren't as fond of McGuire's art. Now, I... I remember being struck by his art. It was different. His take on the characters was very different. He did a lot of a lot of things with facial his, expressions. His expressions are amazing. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it was he was. I mean, uh, as uh, an artist, his, he was very influential on on me. Like the kind of detail that I wanted to put into people, not just right. not just faces, but I mean, I felt like he he you know just. From top to bottom, I think his his anatomy, his uh, you know his expressions, his uh, just his figure drawing, like his poses were just very real. He was very on point. It was like yeah. he was drawing real people in costumes, but not in the way that Alex Ross does it. No. Whereas Alex Ross draws these like it looks like a real person wearing a costume, but in a very grandiose, very Godlike way, mm-hmm. whereas you know, McGuire almost is more like a, hey, look, I'm cosplaying as <laughs> that's a good way to look at it, yeah. You know? <laughs> but you know, but yeah, but still, but he still was able to do the action and the super heroic type of things. But I can imagine, yeah, that that would be a very huge departure from what Justice League was. Although they didn't use most of the main, what we think of as traditional Justice League characters either, and I'm sure they did that as a conscious break from that. You know, Batman was really the only one associated with the 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 traditional Justice League who they kept, and it should be noted that McGuire, for all of his his sort of cosplayish, I like how you put that, his (laughs) cosplay way of of rendering characters, still could draw a hell of a Batman, a hell of Mm -hmm. a Superman when he did it. You know, like he he still knew how oh, to yeah. flat out superheroic characters. Mm-hmm. His Despero was scary, man. But um, it was oh gosh, I'm I'm just trying to I'm trying to formulate thought with what I felt like. With, I remember just reading that book and feeling like I was reading real people, like mm-hmm. their 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 personalities really were jumping, their individual personalities really jumped off the page at me mm-hmm. in Justice League. And and like I said, they didn't have the big name characters for for the most part. You know, I don't know if I ever saw Wonder Woman in that book. Um, and their their humorous approach worked to great effect when you got to an issue where, where one of the main characters died. Mm-hmm. Because I remembered that it, it they, the tone, same creative team, but there was a difference in the tone there and you could feel it. Um, that was also the. Didn't Adam Hughes do some work on? He yeah he he had uh, maybe a three or four issue run. Yeah, because that may have been the first place that I had encountered his work, and and then I was I remember being very impressed with his stuff is there as well. Um, but yeah, I mean that was and so you had all sorts of different things going on in '86 all at once. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know you had the grim and gritty butted right up against the silly and irreverent, and ways that it all worked and. You know, I, I had a, a subscription at the time to Rolling Stone magazine, and I'll, I remember getting an issue. Now, and, and, and 
we do live in such a different day and age. You know, now <laughs> you know you you turn on, you boot up your computer, and as soon as you you, you know you go to whatever website, and you go to Facebook, and everybody's sharing articles about the latest. News. You know everything. Yeah, everything. But I remember I got my issue of Rolling Stone, and it was an issue with Stevie Wonder on the cover. Mm-hmm. He had a new album that had come out, and flipped it open to the table of contents page, and the table of contents page had a full illustration behind it, a full airbrushed illustration of The Dark Knight. It was like penciled by Frank Miller and I believe airbrushed by Ken Stacy, I want to say. Wow. And I remember just being completely taken aback. One, because it was just such an impressive piece. Two, because I, holy crap, they're showing this is like comics in this mainstream publication. And they did a full article about the Dark, Dark Knight series. Wow. And how it was breaking through media and the sales and all of that. And it, that, in my, was, in my mind, that was one of the first times, places that I saw this medium that I grew up with. But even, even as I grew up with and, and, and knew the power of it, knew its potential... Yeah, I kind of mentally sort of already figured well, it would remain sort of marginalized. That's the first big exposure that I remember the comics I was reading at the time mm-hmm. getting. You know, for me, that kind of crystallized a big part of 1986 as well. Like, wow, it, it's broken through. There's other people out there reading it, aside from just me and the people like me. I, I remember when Superman turned 50... He was on the cover of Time magazine, mm-hmm. and that was uh, it was a John Byrne, John Byrne Ron. and Jerry Ordway did collaborate on that. Yeah, one. yeah. I remember that. I was at a, I was at a relative's house, having an absolute totally boring time, <laughs> and I was sitting around like wasn't allowed to turn on the television. I was just sitting in the living room, and I'm like, that's Superman on the cover of Time, and I start. I was like, wow, that's amazing. I what's funny is I didn't find out about that until right like the issue had just disappeared I think from the newsstand, and I was bummed because I had missed it, and I had a I was attending the art institute at the time because I believe that was 19, that was eighty eight, I had a classmate, who long story short he was an ass he was just <laughs> an ass, and <laughs> he was a friend in the way that people are just your friends but he was an ass. But one of the nice things he did, though, I remember he he came home from visiting his family for a weekend, and his parents had a subscription, and he, because everybody even then knew Marcel's all about the Superman, and he, <laughs> he brought me the issue of Time Magazine wow. that they had had in the mail, so I have that upstairs, it still has the address label on it, <laughs> addressed to his parents, but yeah, that was a big deal as well. Mm-hmm. Um, when I think of, I, and when I also think of 86 and, and now talking about these characters breaking through to other media. Um, so I have, I, I think it's a funny story. So, 1986 was, there was a movie that came out in 86 that I wanted to see. And it was a comics-based movie. And I was really enthused about it because it was a comics-based movie. It was done by well-known people. I was like, oh, I want to see that movie. The movie came and went so quickly that I m- missed it. And I had this, I had to uh, uh, some relatives who took me to go see it, or were going to take me to see it, because it had come and gone so quickly, I had to settle to go for going to see another movie. The movie that I settled for seeing was Aliens, the second one. Oh, okay. Which ended up kicking ass, obviously. Like that's a great movie. Oh, yeah. I was like, that ended up being great. So, but it was my consolation movie. The movie that I wanted to see 
Howard the Duck. <laughs> so, that was 1986. Howard the Duck. Mm-hmm. For that dumb reason, I actually still have some affection for that silly movie. Um, <laughs> it's... Well, and, and talk about a character that has... It's always, like, been in, you know, our collective subconscious. I mean, that, that as a kind of a weird fan favorite that he had a cameo in Guardians of the Galaxy, like, in mm-hmm. the end credit scene. He's... Um, I, I, he was in like one of the Marvel zombies, like one of the subsequent series. Really? Yeah, it was like him and Machine Man, like fighting zombies or something. Um, and he's he's getting a new series. Um, I think it's coming out like in a, like maybe March, with um, huh. written by uh, Chip Zdarsky, who does uh, Sex Criminals with Max Fraction. And no kidding. Drawn by uh, Joe Canonis. <laughs> and it, it all comes back around. Yeah, exactly. It? So it's it's funny that you know the the character you know and 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 the book was you know very much like a a jokey commentary on a lot of things you know and obviously the the movie tanked but it's uh, it's still held in some regard with a, with us with a lot of people. You could make the argument, I think. That that was the first Marvel movie. Oh, I, absolutely. You know, say what you will about it. I mean, special effects were what I, you know, I think even then I, I held certain things with a very light touch. You know, I didn't look at Howard the Duck like this ruins everything for everything right. all all time. It was a movie and it came and it went and it was what it was and it, you know, like I thought they did some cute little things with it. it there's there's certain comics properties that I I hold in higher esteem than others just because, you know, like for instance, we're a little off topic here, but I I was never really married to the Hulk, for instance. You know, like I like the Hulk, he's there, I respect yeah, him all the stuff. Same here. But he's you know I, it's the Hulk. So when when they started making the current movies and, the, and this this guy was just talking about this earlier with someone, <coughs> when when they did the first movie and it came out. There, all I wanted to see out of a Hulk movie was the Hulk fighting the army in the desert. Because that's all I associate with Primal Hulk. <laughs> yeah. And I got it, so I was satisfied. Now, you can say whatever else you want about Angie. Yeah, that was pretty movie. much the only good scene in the entire movie. Pretty much. <laughs> pretty much. But I was, I, was, I was impressed at the time for what it was. Yeah. Like, I mean, I don't know if that's heresy. It is heresy with a lot of people. But I didn't mind it. You know, because the Hulk, to me, it wasn't, just, it wasn't my guy. Mm-hmm. Now... And I've had, you know, different feelings about different characters off and on like that. And Howard the Duck was kind of one of them. Like, it didn't... That didn't bother me that this movie... I don't even know what you would expect the Howard the Duck movie to be. Nowadays, with CGI, you can do anything. Yeah. But that, you know, I don't almost wonder if that was... That's a problem. I can't even imagine, like, we're so used to the marketing machine with movies now. How they even pitched that, sold that, and marketed that movie to anybody. You know, uh-huh. I, because, you, you know, now you can pitch almost anything to, you know, a studio and say, oh, it's it's from, based on a comic book. Back then, like 30 years ago, 
What does that mean? Oh, so kids will like it? If you mm -hmm. say, oh, it's based on a comic book, oh, so it's, it's, it's a kid's movie. Well, you know how they pitched it? You know how that movie got made? Because Lucasfilm made it. Mm -hmm. And George Lucas probably like, liked the property and said, I want to make that movie. And Hollywood yeah. went, oh, okay. You're George Lucas. You're George Lucas. Say what you want about George Lucas right now. If George Lucas wanted to make a movie right now, whatever that movie is, it would get made. Oh, yeah. N Absolutely. Hint, hint, hint to George Lucas, you should really make a hero core movie. It would be <laughs> amazing. <laughs> I don't care if the public doesn't like it. It'll make a million dollars. I'll be happy. Thank you very much. There you go. You heard it here first. Nudge, nudge. Uh, <laughs> you know the the, the one the one um, last thing I wanted to wanted to talk about that, and it's something that I never really associated with 1986 because at the time I wasn't reading any of these books. Again, it's going back to the the sophistication of comics and the stories. Um, was uh, the the British invasion mm. of comics, where you know you had you know Alan Moore, uh, Neil Gaiman, and which I didn't know was who was he was writing at the time, but um, Grant Morrison, you know I didn't really acknowledge really know about Grant Morrison until like I, for me maybe like yeah. the, like I, I knew he did the Invisibles, mm -hmm. which was nineties. Mm -hmm. Somewhere in like mid to late nineties, maybe. I and I'll be honest, I didn't really follow it. Then. I, I didn't either. I think I read the first issue, had no idea what it was, and just immediately forgot about it. But, but I guess Grant Morrison kind of cut his teeth shortly after mm -hmm. Alan Moore did. Um, so the you know we had these this influx of uh, British creators, uh, you know, more revitalizing. Swamp Thing, which again I've never read, but I at least acknowledge its importance to the industry and the type of stories that he was writing and the uh, you know how he changed the character. You know, that I remember I was collecting Swamp Thing prior to Moore's run, and I'd actually stopped by the time Moore came on board, so I missed the transition, the immediate transition. Mm -hmm. I will say this. I mean, one of the things you see, you saw happening in that period, time and again, on Karen, we've already we've, we've gone over because this happened on Daredevil, this happened on Fantastic Four, um, and then you, you saw it happen with Superman, you know, bigger characters. You saw it happen with Swamp Thing, where you had characters that had established continuities and they were in their books and they were doing all right. Then you had somebody come along. Oh, uh, Thor with Walt Simonson's another one, because mm -hmm. I believe '86 was the year that Thor turned into a frog, but. <laughs> But you had you had specific creators come along with visions, and around '86 was around a time when these creators were allowed to explore those visions. And I, you can even make that that argument with Watchmen, because Watchmen all that was was an exploration of themes using character archetypes. You know, those were originally supposed to be the Charlton characters, right. and ended up they had because DC said, "Well, we're not going to do that with them. Why don't you make up some characters?" So they did. But time and again, you had these creators with visions come on to these properties that were already established and just completely reinvent them to the degree it's hard to think of these characters now as they were prior to what these creators did. Um, the British Invasion, I think those, those creators had a unique opportunity because, you know, comics as an, as an art form, as we know them, 
are are a very much an American art form. Mm-hmm. You know, embraced by the world and transformed by the world, but it's still very much an American art form. Yeah. I think the British creators, you know, they got to see us from the outside. We're always doing it from the inside. They got to see us and our work from the outside, and not just our comics, but our entire culture. So I find it very intriguing when 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 Morrison and 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 more and when they when and Gaiman when they create these books and they start working on them and these really well known American I mean it doesn't get any more well known than Superman and Batman right but when they start touching those characters and showing us kind of sort of how they're perceived in a more global sense and I think maybe that maybe that amplifies the power that the characters have both mm-hmm. in the stories and just the context of how they're utilized. So, maybe that's a critical, yeah, that is like a critical part of how, of the mm-hmm. evolution of of comics, particularly mainstream. We had, we didn't really talk a whole, whole lot about like alternative comics. To be fair, I didn't read a whole lot of alternative comics back in the day. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I, I guess it depends on, you know, what, what you consider alternative, like, what we call indie now, when I, you know, at my young age, you know, I, I thought, well, wow, those are weird comics. Mm-hmm. Like, I probably would have classified those books, like Grendel, American Flag, stuff like that. I probably would have classified those as more like alternative. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, now it's like now being older, there is definitely a difference between independent comics and alternative comics. Yes. And yeah, and I, I think back then, I, I don't know if it was really the the, the divide was as clear as it is now. Or maybe it was, and I just didn't really know it. Well, you know, and this is actually a perfect tie-in, and <laughs> last subjects, but, <laughs> um, you know, the Museum just started a new exhibit down there, the Teenage oh, right. Mutant Ninja Turtles exhibit. Right. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles is 30-plus years old now, which yeah. kind of blows my mind when I think about it, because I still equate that to being a new franchise. It's not new. You know, if you, you if you're 30 years old, they've been there your entire life, and I I was, you know, I had a subscription to Comic Book Buyer's Guide back in the day, and I used to get that every week and or every two weeks, however often that came out, and I would read about what's going on. I remember seeing ads for Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, this this silly parody thing, and and it was a it was a parody of Frank Miller's Daredevil. It, like four that? books. That was that was a big one. Or Daredevil was, slash Ronin. Yeah, it was, or it was like kind of a more of a commentary, or like you know, or, yeah. There's like four or five books that they were. There was that. There was Dave Simcerebus. Mm-hmm. Um, oh gosh, I'm just gonna totally blank here. But there, it, there was like several books that they were parody. Oh, X Men, mm-hmm. X Men slash Teen Titans, I guess, and. When you look at the original books, the book and the artwork, and they have what's nice is that in the exhibit they have they sh- they take you through they take you through from the inception mm-hmm. they have a copy of the original sketch you know the original sketch that they did of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles which was done as a joke go figure that one sketch is worth seventy five thousand dollars now wow it just sold for that much somewhere recently and I thought when I read that. Uh, you know, in my lifetime, I remember when the first issue of Action Comics was selling for seventy-five thousand, and that was considered a lot. Now, the first issue of Action Comics, along with several other issues like Detective Twenty-Seven and 
Marvel Comics number one, I think Wiz Comics number one. These books are regularly auctioning for well over a million dollars. Yeah, I'll say into the millions. Yeah. So it's not out of the realm of feasibility that one day that's that original sketch of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles could sell for over a million dollars. Sure. And that was just before eighty six, but you know, eighty six is kinda when they took off. You know, that's when Mm -hmm. they started to make the leap to other media, you know, to to cartoons, animated series and uh, and and action figures and everything that followed, but you know, often people cite the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles as being the, the <laughs> just the thing that came just before the bubble broke for independent comics. You know, the black and white comics yeah, explosion. There was, there was like, yeah, the black and white boom. Yeah, but you know, you, if you can even point to that one that one lasting success, that I think speaks to the worth of of this movement in comics. And you still have people who, who who are doing work then that are still in the medium now. Viable forces. You know, I mean, Eastman and Laird are some of the most, uh, a couple of richest people in comics, you mm-hmm. know. Uh, 86 was a problem. I think that was around the time I first started seeing McFarlane's work, I want to say. Yeah, I would say, because he, you know, he was doing, uh, he was actually on Infinity Inc. for mm-hmm. DC. And then he started. And then he started on um, the Incredible Hulk with some Peter David with, when Peter David was writing. And what's the other one? Like, oh yeah, that is another. Peter one. David's Hulk was another kind of like a a, a big thing in the eighties. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He latched onto that book, man. He mm-hmm. did stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to say that McFarlane was also he was one of the artists on Batman Year Two when they he got was. around to that. He was. He did Batman Year Two. Yeah. So. You really, you definitely have that demarcation in comics history of before '86 and after '86, and, mm-hmm. and and once more to reference that article that you, you you that sort of started this discussion. You know, every media has a year that's kind of references the best year as, and he cited 1939 for film because you had all these these supremely well known movies that mm-hmm. came out in that one year, like Gone with the Wind and others. I think you could make an argument for different years and different periods in comics history being as important, you know, because 1961 with with the Fantastic Four alone, that's a big deal. Oh, yeah. Um, But 86, because I think you had so many books that had so much lasting influence, you had so many creators working at the height of their powers, and you, you... so many of those books still are powerful today. Powerful in a different way, but they're still powerful. I, I I would really implore anybody who's really interested in comics to go back and revisit a lot of the work that came out in that year, because mm-hmm. you get to see you get to see comics doing stuff that they had never done before and pointing the way to where you know where we're at right now. Where and look at yeah. what comics mean to to our our art scene, our greater popular culture. I wouldn't have. Ima- I would not have imagined comics would have the acceptance they have right now in 1986. No, definitely not. It was still very much a, a kind of an insular uh, medium. You know, it was a very tight knit group of people that um, that read and collected comics. And uh, but now it's yeah, it belongs to the world. Mm-hmm. So, so you're welcome, world. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> for us paving the way for yeah. you to have all this. Up. Thank the nerds. Woo. If it wasn't for us, you wouldn't have your multi-million dollar movies. 
Yep, that's us taking one for the team. <laughs> Planet <laughs> Team Earth. <laughs> Go. <laughs> well, I think that's a pretty good place to uh, to wrap up. Yeah. So definitely, that was the exact conversation I wanted to have. Yes. <laughs> Go read some '86 comics. Go see that Toonzium exhibit. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and yeah, I'm going to post a link to that article in the show notes. And I mean, it, it, if you're going to read it, make sure you get comfortable because it's very, it's, it, it took me a couple of days to read it. Oh, it's yeah. very, very in depth, and it doesn't even. It, it's basically a, a, a an like a preview of a larger work that this writer is doing. So, but you're still going to get a lot of information. Um, so uh, definitely check that out. And um, if you have any, you know, suggestions or uh, a differing view of anything we've talked about today, by all means, you know, let us know. And um, I think that's it for this episode. Um, thanks again to Marcel for having an awesome conversation. Thanks for having me, Dan. This is always fun. Yeah, and we're going to keep doing it as long as we can. So. Um, This has been episode 189 of Comic Book Pit. I'm Dan. I'm Marcel. And we'll see you next time. Bye, Internets.